are listening to the weekly sermon podcast of Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. If you'd like to learn more about CBC, check out our website at cbcofsavannah.org. And now this week's sermon from the series, Choose This Day, from the book of Joshua. You guys can have a seat. We're going to pray. Before we do, I just uh, want to thank you guys. We don't do this enough as a staff, as a church. And um, there's a lot of change that's been going on in the last couple of weeks. Asking you to park here one week, asking you to park there another. So many of y'all serving faithfully in so many different ministries. Um, children's ministries, parking, security, and just a lot going on. And this church works and functions because of y'all. And so... Just wanted to say thank you to you guys. We don't do it enough, but um, bearing with the sound system and the pops that we just cannot figure out this week, our, our sound team literally took the entire sound system apart and put it back together to try to figure out what this popping is going on and still haven't figured it out. So if it gets popping in the middle, just ignore it as best as you can. And so um, maybe it's just an old building with old wiring or maybe we're just plugging the wrong thing in. But um, uh, in the end, we're gonna exalt Jesus during a service, we're going to worship him. Um, but I just so appreciate y'all doing what you do. Uh, just a great body. And so thank you guys for all, just everything and bearing with us and you're slow to anger with pops and everything else. And so, uh, but we're going to pray. As usual, we're going to pray for another church in this town this morning. We're going to pray for First Baptist Church of the Island um, and, and the ministries going on over there and their, their pastoral staff and uh, just that God would use their church to continue to make disciples there as we, we do here. So would you guys bow with me and we'll pray. Heavenly Father, um, thank you for your grace that we've sung about, that we'll talk about. I ask right now uh, just for your grace again in this third service. I need it uh, as much as I did in the first service that you would just fill me with your spirit, a broken man in, in need of grace to just do the simplest of thing to, prepare, to preach your word, the thing you've called me to do, but I can't even do it on my own. So I just ask you to help me. Fill me, empower me. Uh, may it be fresh on my lips as it was in the first service. I pray for your people that we would be, uh, have ears to hear and, and understand what the text says and what the Spirit is saying uh, through the text. I, I pray also for just other churches in this town. We think of First Baptist Church of the Islands this morning and how they are preaching and worshiping right now as we are. And Lord, I pray for the ministries there, for the leadership there, for the people there, that they would continue to, to persevere, to love you well, to, to make disciples that their leadership team would preach and, and shepherd well uh, so that they reach their, their community for the gospel that we would come alongside in any way we can. And together we, we proclaim Christ, not as competitors, but as brothers and sisters. Uh, and so we just ask that your hand would be on them and bless them and multiply them greatly this morning. Um, again, Lord, uh, just use your word and, and me, a broken man, to proclaim uh, just goodness to your people, the goodness of scripture. It's in Christ's name and for his sake I pray, amen. All right, turn to Joshua 10. So keep going through Joshua, chapter 10. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's probably one in the seat in front of you or close to you. You can use that one. You can take it home if you don't have one or help you buy one. Um, we want you to have a copy of the scriptures. But Joshua 10, sixth book of the Bible. 
Ever heard the words, I told you so? I told you so. I warned you, right? You made your bed, now sleep in it, right? You tied it, you ride it, love life, right? They kind of, you ever said those words? Maybe you said, maybe you couched them with, I hate to tell you this, but you don't hate to tell them. What you hate to do is admit that you like telling is what the reality is. Why? Because we like to pat ourselves on the back. We like being right, right? Now I could easily this morning stand up here in front of y'all and, and say, I told you so. Three weeks ago, I prophesied Braves going out first round. I could tell y'all, I could, I could pat myself on the back, and, but I won't remind you of that because I love y'all and I don't want to discourage you at all. So um, I could easily do it, but I'm not going to. This chapter of scripture is one of those chapters where God could easily say, told y'all so. This, I warned you, you made your bed, now go sleep in it. He could easily do that. And maybe that's kind of some of our view of God. Maybe we have that view of God where he's just kind of waiting there. He's the principal. He's got his arms crossed, just waiting for you to mess up. And then, aha, I knew you were a fraud. I knew it. You made your bed. Now you go sleep in it. You deal with that now. Is that your view of of God? Because what we see in chapter 10 is something completely opposite. What we see is, is God does the opposite. He doesn't respond like that. How he responds is with grace. With grace. And, and here's my desire for us as a church is that we understand and embrace and are amazed and love and cast ourselves upon constantly the grace of God. And then when we do, then we turn, then we go and extend grace to those who need it that we don't just love grace for ourselves, that we love grace for ourselves and then we go and we show grace so that when you are fallen and when you are broken and when you mess up again and you make that bonehead decision that you will make, that you don't just sit there, oh, woe is me, oh, I'm so bad, blah, 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 that you will go back and you will choose grace. We've been talking about decisions and this book is a book of decisions. The decision this morning is grace, that you will love grace, that you'll embrace grace, that you'll, you'll cast yourself on grace, that you'll amaze, be amazed by grace. And so this is a chapter about grace. And, and really, as we go in chapter 10, I've, been, I've identified just from my study, there's probably more, four ways in which God lavishes his grace on his people. Back then, and he still does in the exact same way. And so my goal is to encourage us this morning so that we understand grace. And if you remember what happened, if you weren't here last week, here's the backdrop. Israel did it again. They made a bonehead decision. They made a covenant with Gibeon. They were deceived, but they didn't ask God whether they should do it or not. They acted independent of God and they made a dumb decision. They made their bed and now it's time to sleep in it. It's time to sleep in it, right? They make this covenant against God's will. And so now they gotta deal with the ramifications. All right, so Joshua chapter 10, what happens? How does God respond? Verse one, as soon as Adonai Zedek, the king of Jerusalem, this is the first time in the scripture Jerusalem shows up, right? Has no edification value, I don't think. I just wanted to highlight that for you, just so you know. First time Jerusalem out of 800 times in the Bible, here it is. But the king of Jerusalem, he heard how Joshua had captured Ai and devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them. 
He feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, the king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, to Dabir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me, help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the kings of Jerusalem, the kings of Hebron, the kings of Jarmuth, the kings of Lachish, the kings of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And so what you have is this king of Jerusalem and his boys are mad. Why? Because Gibeon is, tra- is a traitor. All right, and, and Gibeon has gone to the other team. And, and if, it was, if they were like the last guy off the bench, you know, it wouldn't have been a big deal. Who cares? He doesn't play anyway. But Gibeon were studs. It says they were all warriors. This is, it was a great city. This is the star player on your team, leaving your team and going to the arch enemy. He is betrayed and they are mad. So they say, let's go and let's take them out. Let's take out Gibeon, right? And remember Gibeon last week made a covenant with Israel. Okay, that's your backdrop. So what happens? Verse six, the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal saying, do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly, save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. Help, help brothers, help who made a covenant with us, help. Now, if I'm Joshua, I'm thinking, you got to be kidding me. It's been like one day. And they're already asking for help. This is like a new person moves in your neighborhood. You go over because you're nice and you say, hey, anything you need, just kind of ask. We love, you know, we love new neighbors. First night, they come over and they need a shovel. Second day, they need a ladder. Third day, they need some flour. Fourth day, they need some eggs. And you're thinking, great day in the morning. Why did I even say that? Right? (laughs) Don't come anymore. You've used up your time. Right? This needy neighbor. That's who these guys are. But it's more than just eggs. What are they asking them for? Send your husbands, send your sons, send your, your grandfathers, send your men to, work, to risk their lives for us who lied to you, right? They're in this covenant, why? Because Gibeon lied. So you want us to risk our husbands, our sons, our dads for you guys who lied to us? That's what they're asking for. Yep, come and rescue us. Come and save us. Now, think about it. If I'm Joshua, I'm thinking, this is our chance, right? Oops, didn't get that email. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, oh, we, oh, we read this. We got this phone call three days too late. Sorry, Gibeon. Missed that one. This is their chance. This is their chance to get out, to let Gibeon just kind of get wiped off. Oops, bad decision. Oops, sorry. But is that how they respond, right? No. What does Joshua do? Verse seven, so Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him and all the mighty men of valor because Joshua is a man of integrity because they swore in the name of Yahweh last week. You saw it because it's an issue of God and his reputation. They honor the covenant. And they make, this is William's last point last week. They, you, they make the best of a bad decision. Even they risk their lives for people who lied to them. And, and again, if you're in that bad decision and you're in the middle of that 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 hard relationship, great encouragement. Hey, make the best of it. Even if they lie to you, even if they treat you like junk, what do you do? You go and do what is right. And that marriage with that, whatever it is, you go and do what's right. And that's what Joshua does. But see, this is where I would be as dad. Ha ha ha. This, this is why I told you so, right? I mean, how many parents? This is why I told you not to do that. This is why you don't text and drive, 
right? This is why I told you to, whatever. You ever did that? You ever did that, spouse? This is, T. I told you, honey, I told you this is what happens when you do this, right? Employer, employee, see, I told you, this is why you do, this is why you enter the number like this, see? This is what you get, right? Anybody else guilty of that, maybe, a little of us? That's what God should be doing right here, right? This is why I said, don't make a covenant. See, you made your bed. Now go lie in it. But is that what he says? Verse eight, the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them, for I've given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. When God has the perfect opportunity to say, ah, ha, ha, made your bed, what does he do? He doesn't even mention it. He doesn't even bring it up. All he does is go back to what he's been saying the entire book. I am with you. I have given them in your hand. He says it in chapter one before they go in the land. I am with you. I've given them in your hand. He says it before they go into Jericho. I am with you. I've given them in your hand. He says it before they go into Ai the second time. I am with you. I have given them in your hand. He doesn't even bring it up. He says, I will do it like I have always do it. That people is CBC is grace. Grace is at its simplest definition is, is getting what we don't deserve. It's getting something we do not deserve. It's favor that we don't deserve. It's different than mercy. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. What do they deserve? Nothing. They deserve to be abandoned. They deserve to be left alone. They deserve, go fight your battle. What does God give them? Absolute victory. He says, I have not even a man shall stand. I will give you absolute victory. That is grace. That is grace. And here's the first kind of observation for us this morning is that in grace, God does not hold our, our past mistakes against us. He doesn't hold grudges, right? And as some of us fight with this and we wrestle with this, I know, and I did for a long time too, you have this misunderstanding of grace that somehow your behavior changes God's view of you. So if I have a bad week and man, I haven't done a quiet time and man, I've struggled with that and I did all these things and I'm just not worthy, Right? I, I, you know what I need to do? I need to earn my way back into God's good graces. I'll do a couple quiet times. I'll give a little extra. I'll, I'll volunteer for the nursery. I'll pray extra hard. And once I do those things, then I'll be more acceptable to God. Then I can get back in his good graces. And we have that. That's our picture of grace. Or it's the flip side. I don't know what you're talking about, Willis, but I, I've had a good week. Right? I did a quiet time every day. Served in the nursery. Gave a little extra. Invited someone to church. Bought a cup of coffee for a homeless guy. I've had a good week. I'm feeling pretty good about myself this week. And both are warped views of grace. They're both warped views of God. As if you could manipulate God into caring more or less for yourself. The only reason, the only reason you have any standing before God, the only reason he doesn't hold grudges has nothing to do with what you have done, has everything to do with what Christ has done. Everything. It's his finished work. Because on the cross, Jesus took your past sin, your present sin, and your future sin. Everything you haven't even done yet. You said, how can that be? I haven't even done it yet. Well, when, you, when he died, you hadn't done anything. And he paid for it all. He paid for all your sin. It is finished on the cross. He who the Son has set free is free indeed. And so the writer to the Colossians, Paul says this, right? Go to slide, there it is. And you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of the debt that stood against us with its legal demands. How did he do it? He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. Your debt, gone, all of it, gone, paid in full. 
So any access, any, any privilege you have before God has nothing to do with you, as if you could make him love you more or less. He's already given you everything he can give you, his son. And so it's a word view of God to think, well, I can, you know, I, I'm going to earn this grace. You're not. So stop trying. When you come in repentance to this God, he gives a second, third, fourth, fifth, tenth, eleventh, seventieth times seventh chance because that is who he is. Your behavior does not change his covenant faithfulness. It cannot. He has proved it in his son. And the scriptures are filled with examples of this, of people who just mess up and God gives them chance after chance. Think about Abraham. How many times he had, Abraham had a hottie for a wife? All right, And every time he went to a new place, he was scared because they were gonna kill him for his wife because she was so pretty. So what does he do? Every time he lies about it, tell me, tell me you're my sister. And every time they steal his sister, right? And every time God has to rescue him from his lying, you'd think he'd learn. Doesn't learn. His sons do the same thing with their wives. Jacob lies. How many times did God forgive it? David messes up constantly. How many times? The disciples, how many times do they think they're great? How many times do they doubt God? And he still continues to forgive because that is in his nature. That is who he is. And, and I don't know, I, I don't know if you're like me. If you're a broken guy who yells at the kids when he shouldn't and is impatient with his wife and doesn't cherish her like I should and, and doesn't pursue Christ hard like I should sometimes and, and just I'm lazy sometimes. If you have these struggles, something like this, this concept of grace, it, it blows me away and it causes me to just worship. To understand that Despite myself, God doesn't hold my past. That God is not doing what I would do. What I would do with myself, it'd be like, you're done. I, I'm done with you. You've had enough chances. I'm done. You're gone. I'm tired of you letting me down. I'm tired of you wasting my time. I'm moving on to this guy over here. That's what I would do with myself, but that's not what God does. Just right, the writer to Lamentations says, Lamentations is a book in the Bible that most people don't read because it's a depressing book. It's, about, it's crying. It's a whole crying poem. I don't like poetry as it is, but a crying poem is even worse, right? <laughs> and so Jeremiah is crying and he's lamenting and it's five chapters of depression and defeat. But right smack dab in the middle of it, this is what he says. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercy never comes to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. See, that is who God is. You're new every morning. And so where have you failed? Where are you thinking that God is sitting there? Uh-huh, that divorce, your fault. I know what you guys did before you got married. I know, I remember. I've seen how you messed up with that kid. I know what you're doing behind your roommate's back. Aha! Uh -huh. He's not holding it against you. He is not, this is not some grudge. Oh, I remember what you did when you were 17 years old. Don't you forget it. You may be 57 now, but I remember, right? You, you have to choose grace. You have to understand and recognize that he is not holding it over your head, right? He is the God of grace. He is the God of second chances when we cast ourselves on his mercy. I read a great story about Thomas Edison this week that did some research to make sure it was true because preachers like to exaggerate about guys that are dead. So this one is actually true. Um, but Thomas Edison, in the beginning when he was creating light bulbs, took him 24 hours to make one light bulb, right? Him and his team, 24 hours, one light bulb. Um, and at the end of a the day, they finished the light bulb and there's a young boy that worked in the, in the shop with them and he handed the light bulb to that young boy. His job was to take it upstairs and put it and store it away, that one light bulb. So the boy's carefully walking up the stairs and then he, all they hear is crash. 
24 hours gone. So what does Edison and his team do? They start making the next light bulb. And when they complete that next light bulb, he calls the boy over and says, here, take it upstairs. See, that's grace. Does he deserve it? No. But see, that's our God. Do we deserve it? No. Choose grace. Embrace grace. Love grace. Let's keep reading. So God speaks and Joshua listens. Verse nine. So Joshua came upon them suddenly having marched up all night from Gilgal. If you do your little geography study, it's a 25 mile hike, 25 miles up to Gil, from Gilgal up to this place. Uphill, 4,000 feet elevation. They went up 4,000 feet. And so needless to say, they are tired. They're not sitting at camp carb loading, getting ready for the battle, all right? They're wiped out all night long, going to face five kings, right? So that's what's going on. And notice the wording of what happens next, verse 10. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Haran and struck them as far as Azekah and Makedah. As they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. And so again, notice the, word, the wording there. If you were to ask one of these Israelite soldiers, man, tell me about the battle. How did y'all fight this battle? How did y'all win? You know what you wouldn't have heard was this. Well, you know, we snuck up the hill. I, I kind of was like camouflaged like a rock and I was hot and I froze like this. And then they turned her back and I was like William Wallace and I came out like Batman and, oh, and, I, and I knocked him. You should have seen me. I was like Conan the Barbarian. I took out like seven. You wouldn't have heard that. What you would have heard was this. We were tired. Twenty five miles, y'all, uphill at night. I was thinking, how are we going to fight? We're going against five kings. We've never fought five kings. We've only fought one. And it was AI. That was the JV team from Bloomingdale. Remember? We haven't done any of this yet. We're going against five kings, walking all night, uphill, both ways in the snow, barefoot. And then we show up. And all of a sudden, they, they just freak out and they start spazzing out and they run down the hill. And I'm thinking, we just came up the hill. We got to run down the hill now. So we start chasing them down the hill. And on the side, it's sunny. And behind us, it's sunny. And over there, it's sunny. But in front of us, is this big cloud. These big old hailstones are just knocking them out and they're winging by our heads. But not one of us gets hit. It's just taking them out. Boom, 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 boom. And at the end of the day, I look around. I haven't even hit anybody but everybody's gone. We've, we win. And I didn't even do anything but run up the hill and down the hill. That's what they would have said. Because at the end of this, this portion of the scripture, it says what? Who fought this battle? Verse 14, the Lord fought for Israel. The Lord fought for Israel. The more were knocked out by the hailstones, verse 11, than Israel, right? See that people, it was grace, this is not the Lord's battle. Who is the one who got them into this mess? The Israelites. This is their bed. They should be making it. Who is fighting the battle? Yahweh is fighting the battle. Right? Yahweh. See, that is grace. That is grace. And why is he doing it? Because he is their advocate. Because he has chosen them and he loves them and they are his people. And he is faithful. And understand this. God, our heavenly father, is not a neutral party. He's not neutral in this deal. He's not like me. Saturday afternoon, turn on the TV, football game. Iowa State versus Nevada. 
No one cares. My kids say, who, who are we rooting for, Dad? No one cares about this game. I don't even know what's on TV. Now, in Iowa State, Nevada, no, they don't even care, right? I'm neutral. I don't care who wins or loses. That is not God. God is not like, oh, it doesn't matter who wins. It's a big deal. All right, he is not neutral. These are his children. I get this as a dad. I mean, I, I get this. A couple weeks ago, my daughter plays volleyball. Went to the volleyball game. They asked me, would you be the line judge? I'm thinking, we're gonna win. Uh, I'm, I'm, we're gonna win. Everything's in, everything's in, everything's in, right? Right, because I am not neutral. I'm the whole time thinking, hopes this girl hits it in the net. Yeah, that's what I'm, I mean, that's what I'm thinking for the other, because I'm not a neutral person. I have a supporting, this is my daughter's team. And one of the hardest things for me was my daughter gets up to serve one time and she crosses the line, which is illegal. And so I'm supposed to call her out. I'm supposed to call it. Now in my integrity, just so you know, I did. I said, out, right? (laughs) But it was hard. Why? Because I want my daughter's team to win. Because I'm her dad. If he's our father, he's not sitting back, oh, I don't care. Y'all win, lose, it doesn't matter. I'm just throwing hailstones at everybody. It doesn't matter who I hit. <laughs> <laughs> right? He wants his people to have victory. And so he fights their battle. And that, that's, the second, that's the second thing, that God in his grace fights our battles for us. He fights for his people. You got this mess and you're in debt and it's your debt because you spent more than you made and you got the car payment you couldn't afford. God is not sitting there, that you, you made that bed, you sleeping. I'm not helping you. I'm not helping you there. That's your addiction. That's your anxiety. You cast that anxiety on yourself, not on me. Is that what he says? Or does he say, cast your anxiety on me because I care for you? Right? Oh, that, that's, I told you not to marry him. You married him. That's all you. I'm done. I, I told you how to raise your kids. You didn't listen to me. That's all you. You're done. I, I, you, you wanted this job. I didn't think this was, this was not my plan for you. You took the job. You went to that school. You dated that person. That's on you. I'm out. Is that how God responds to his people? No, it is not. He fights his bat, our battles, even when it's our fault, even when we've made the mess. And I was reminded, I mean, again, God is always using little things to sanctify me and to teach me. And one of the biggest tools in, in my life that God is teaching me and sanctifying right now is Milton the puppy. All right, Milton is a sanctifying machine in our house, all right? And so just the other night, I put Milton in the cage and I'm supposed to, I take him out and I do all these things before I get, get ready for bed and I go to put him in the cage and I see Milton had an accident right in front of the cage. And I don't know why we call it an accident. He purposely did this, I know, <laughs> all right? But whatever it is. And so my first response, what I wanna do is I wanna throw the sponge and the spray and clean it up after yourself, Milton. I don't care. That's what I wanna do. But the reality is this, Milton will never clean it up. All Milton does is roll on his back and ah, sorry. And that's all he does, right? So my job is to get on my hands and knees and scrub up the mess that someone else made because they can't do it themselves. But that's exactly, and I'm thinking about that when I'm preparing for this message. I think that is exactly what God has done for us. Got ourselves in a mess we can't get out of. Right? And he has to come. And this is what he's done from the beginning, y'all. He creates Adam and Eve. Don't eat the fruit. The day you do, you surely die. What do they do? They eat the fruit. As soon as they eat the fruit, what are they doing? They're hiding in a tree naked, trying to hide themselves. Oh, we're scared. We're afraid of you. What does God have to do from the very beginning? He's got to kill one of his animals that he created 
that he delighted in so that he could give them clothes. He has to already take care of these. He's got to kick them out of the garden, not because he's mean, because if they stay in the garden and end up eating the fruit, the tree of life, they will live forever in a fallen state. So he has to protect them from, from Genesis 3 on. And then he's got to make a promise. Now I'm going to send my son. I'm going to send one who will crush the head of the serpent one day. 4,000 years later, what happens? Jesus becomes a man, leaves heaven, takes on humanity, dies on a cross for your sin. Doesn't deserve it, but he does it. Why? Because you could do nothing about it. You couldn't do anything about your sin. And he cleans up the mess. Why? Because that's what our God does. And that's what he's done. He fights his battle, our battles for us. And that doesn't mean, well, we just let go and let God. They still had to march up the mountain. They still had to run down the mountain. But what it means is this. Some of you need to stop trying to fight this mess and these battles alone. You think, I'm disciplined. I can handle it. I went to college. I can do all these things. I'm just going to be younger. Tighten up to the, whatever. No, you will not. You will not. You cannot. Paul does not tell us in Ephesians 6, be strong in yourself and be disciplined. He says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you may stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Some of you need to stop trying to fix your issues on your own, fix the mess that you created, and you need to cry out to him and say, Lord, I am at my rope's end. I need your help. I need the body of Christ to come alongside me. I need spirit-filled Christians to speak truth into my life. I need someone else because I certainly can't do it. That is the place where healing begins. That's where we start seeing things put back together. Doesn't mean everything's gonna be perfect. Doesn't mean all these troubles are gonna go away. Gibeon's gonna be there. But that's when he's gonna walk with you through those things. Are you trying to fight and fix things alone? If you are, not gonna happen. But God in his grace fights for his people. Cast yourself on him. The Israelites did and he does. He fights their battle. He doesn't hold grudge. And speaking of battles, what he does next is, is, is quite amazing. Probably the greatest miracle in all the Old Testament. All right, so the bad guys are on the run. They're running down the hill. Psh, hailstones are flying, Psh, right? Joshua realizes, hey, this is a unique opportunity for us. I got five kings in one spot. And if I can finish this today, it saves a lot of trouble. I don't have to go individually now to every single one of these places, fight a fortified city. I can finish it today. This would be great. The only problem is this. They don't have enough daylight. Sun's going down. They're headed for their cities. They get there. We're going to have to wait. So he does something quite honestly amazing. Look at verse 12. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord on the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, sun, stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still. And the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Yashar, which is a, apparently was some sort of history book or Hebrew book. We don't have it anymore. We don't even know what it is, but it apparently was a record of events and they wrote it down here. The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. So you have this incredible miracle where the sun somehow stops or pauses or something. And remember, what the, the Canaanites worshiped was the sun and the moon and the stars, right? Those were their deities. And there's something going on here where God is showing, guess what? Your deities aren't really deities. I'm in control. In fact, I'm actually causing them to fight against you. They're praying for the sun to go down so they can get to their cities. God is stopping the sun, right? And there's a lot of ink spilt and you can read articles and journals and PhDs and all these things about what's going on here, especially from those who deny miracles. If you deny miracles in scripture, let me just be real frank, Christianity rests on miracles. The whole, the whole 
of Christianity rests on the miracle of the resurrection. Take away that miracle, we have no faith. And so we are people who holds to miracles. But you'll hear things like this attack the scripture. Silly Christians, the sun stood still. Don't you know the sun doesn't move? The earth moves around the sun. The moon moves around the earth. What are y'all living in like the 1500s flat earth? Ha, 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 ha. Silly Christians, you guys are ridiculous. But understand this. That when scripture speaks, it uses the same kind of language. These are people writing. It uses the language of observation, right? It uses figures of speech. I mean, not many of us, I hope, go down and say, hey, honey, let's go down to Tybee tonight. Let's watch the earth rotate. Come on, let's go, <laughs> right? If you use that kind of language and you're single, you might want to recognize something, okay? I mean, just, <laughs> I'm just saying. People are probably, that's probably for a reason, okay? What do we say? Hey, honey, let's go watch the sunset. Let's go, let's go watch the sun rise. We use what? The language of observation. We use figures of speech. The scripture uses figures of speech. It talks about the arm of the Lord and all these things. And, and, and it does that because it uses the language of observation. That's what's going on here. There was some sort of miracle. Scientifically, I don't know what happened. I can't, I can't tell you. It doesn't tell us what happened. It just said that for, for about a whole day, everything seems to be put on hold. Now, normally, that would be a problem, right? Okay, it just would. But here's why I don't have any problem with it. If Genesis 1-1 is true, in the beginning, God created the heaven and earth. If God creates something out of nothing, right? And if he is God, then this is really not a problem. If, if, if God is just like one step above humans, kind of like He-Man or Superman or something. He's stronger than us, but he's kind of still not like, you know, he's just a, a better than us guy, then this is a problem. But if he is God, if he is omnipotent, if he is all powerful, right? Then this is really not a problem. If he creates gravity, he can certainly say, you know what, gravity, pause for a minute. I'm gonna do something here. It, it's really not a problem if he's truly all powerful. So the question is not, did a miracle happen or not? The question is, is God really God? That, that's the question. And if he's really God, then he can really do what he wants with the creation that he makes. Again, I don't know exactly what happened. And you're going to hear all, you know, the sunbeams were bouncing off the moon and they hit Saturn, which went to Pluto, which used to be a planet. It's not a planet anymore, but it used to be. And, you know, you're going to hear all these things. Look, I don't know what happened, but it says this in verse 14. There has been no day like it before or since. It was completely unique. Whatever he does, he gives the Israelites enough time so that they can go and finish the job. That's what he does. And just as another side note, you're gonna read some blogs and you might even hear a sermon, usually an older sermon, but you might hear a sermon where you hear about NASA and the missing day. Mm. Ooh. And there's this myth going out there that NASA did all these scientific calculations and realized there's 24 hours missing. And, and all the Christians are like, ooh, I know what it is. I know what the missing day is. It's in Joshua chapter 10, right? <laughs> Right? That's, that's, and so you'll hear a great sermon about that and how that's true. The only problem is it's not true. NASA has not been looking for a missing day. Right? It's, it's a myth. And Christians do it all the time. Don't paste things to Facebook and tweet them that aren't true. Right? We do not need NASA to validate what God has said. I mean, NASA is not even sending space shuttles into space anymore. I mean, okay, NASA is not going to be around forever. Scripture is enough. It's sufficient. And God says, here's what happened. With specifics, I don't know. We'll TiVo it when we get to heaven and figure it out, right? 
But for some day or a certain amount of time, he causes everything to stop enough so that these people can finish the job. And here's the, don't miss the trees in the middle of the forest. This is why this is significant. Why does he do it? Why does God do this unbelievable miracle? Because Joshua asks him to. Because Joshua says, son, stand still. Moon, don't move, right? I mean, think about the confidence of Joshua to have the guts to go to God and say, um, could you stop the sun? We need to finish this. How much, how much of a big view of God does Joshua have? How much confidence in what God is calling him to do? How much spiritual guts does this guy have? Especially in light of this. Think about this. In chapter nine, Joshua wasn't asking God for anything when he should have been. He should have been asking God for wisdom and discernment. Should we make this covenant? He doesn't even talk to God in chapter nine. In chapter 10, he says, can you break the laws of gravity for me, please? And God answers him. See, that's grace. That's grace, right? And what it teaches me, and as I was reflecting on this passage, is that God delights in the prayers of his children and he delights to answer them. That's grace, and what you don't see is Joshua saying things like, well, I'm not worthy to pray. I didn't pray in chapter nine. I can't pray now. Oh, woe is me. God doesn't want to hear from me, right? He's mad at me. That sounds real spiritual and real humble. It's false humility because you're assuming that you can come to God only when you are good. And again, it's a misunderstanding of why do you have access to God? Because of Christ. The only reason you can talk to God and he responds, it's because what Christ has done. What does the writer to the Hebrews say? Since we have a high priest who passed through the heavens, that's Christ, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. If we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has in every respect been tempted as we are yet without sin, let us therefore with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help. You can go to the throne of grace. You can go into the throne room of the omnipotent God who stops the sun only because what Christ has done, because he left the heavens and passed through and died on a cross. That's why you have access. And so what's, if, he, if he is omnipotent, think about it. What is a big request from God? Stopping the sun's not a big request for an omnipotent God. That's just like, oh yeah, I can do that. Now I'm not saying do that, please. Don't, don't stop the sun. I like, you know. But what does that teach us about the bigness of our God and how flippantly we come to him sometimes in prayer or how maybe we don't? When he invites us and delights in us. And as I were just refreshed on that again this week, I started just, I'm not a big journal guy, but I started again just kind of writing prayer requests in my journal. Just little things. Everything's little for God, but just little things. And just when I saw an answer, I'd check it off and be like, awesome. God answered that prayer. And maybe that's where some of y'all need to be and, and just praying things and start looking for God to answer, expecting for God to answer. Maybe it's, you know, you have no peace in your home because you and your teenager or, or you and your spouse or, or you and your roommate. Maybe it's just praying one day at a time, Lord, just give us peace today. And at the end of the day, if God's, oh man. Maybe it's victory over that one area of sin and struggle that you know that you, just one day at a time. Just give me the grace to make it through. We got a struggle. We got a sick relative. We got a, I don't have a job. I just need to, whatever it is, just one day. And just see God's faithfulness as you go back and look. Answer prayer, answer prayer, answer prayer. Right? Because God delights in that. And if you want to see change, start praying. I'm just telling you. 
You wanna see change in your life, change in other people, start praying. It may take years, but start praying. God in his grace doesn't hold grudges. He fights for his people and he delights to answer the children, his children's prayer. And then just kind of one more thing, one more evidence. And it's really building on what William talked about last week. Uh, if, you, if you summarize, yeah, we don't have time to go through verses 16 to 28, but the, the big idea is this. These five kings end up hiding in a cave. Joshua finds them. He locks them in with a big rock. They go and finish the job. They come back to the big cave. They take the rock away and, and they finish the task. And in all this, they completely have absolute victory. Verse 28 says, everything was destroyed. It was absolute victory. Verse 21, and not one person, all the people returned safe to Joshua. They didn't lose one guy, yet they totally have absolute victory over their enemies. You see this utter defeat you see God take a bad decision in chapter nine, bad decision, and he turns it into something completely different. Now they don't have to go to individual cities. Now they don't have to go all over the place. They have absolutely, a bad decision has been turned to absolute good where he's actually used it for their good, right? And only our God can do that. In his sovereignty, he can take a, a bolo decision, a bonehead mistake, and he can actually turn it into something good. And I was just reminded afresh about this this week. On the way to school, my oldest two, we, I put the uh, little, I have the little app on my phone and we plug it in, it's a little audio Bible. We listen to a chapter or two kind of read and we're in First Kings right now. In First Kings 3, Solomon has just taken the throne of Israel. There's no temple yet, he hasn't built it. And the people are still worshiping at what they call the high places. So they have altars all throughout Israel where they'd go to worship instead of going to the temple because it wasn't there yet. And you know where the highest place, the highest of the high place in all of Israel is before the temple was made? It's smack dab in the middle of Gibeon. Gibeon is the megachurch of ancient Israel before the temple. This is where the king goes. This is where most people go to worship. The very place of their failure, of their brokenness, of their bad decision, God takes that place and in 400 years, it is the high place. And that's a reminder to, to us. God takes poor decisions and he can turn them for good. That's, that's the last evidence of grace, that God takes our mistakes and he uses them for good. And this is what Romans 8:28 is all about, that God works all things together for good. We often will drop that in someone's lap in the middle of their struggles, which is not the right time to do it. Because we think, oh, just God works all things together. Ra -ha -ha. Don't you feel good now? But that, that is, I think is more of an encouragement for after the fact. So that you can look back and say, yeah, now I see it. It may take a week. It may take a month. It may take years. You may never see the good that brings it about. 400 years later is when the good comes about this Gideon decision, Gibeon. They didn't even see it. And maybe you're praying, God, heal my cancer, heal my husband, heal my whatever. And the way he heals is that he takes him home to be with himself and gives him a new and glorified body. And you may think that's, oh, that's not good. It's good for that person. And in a thousand years, you'll see the good of it. Sometimes you have to get far away to see how God uses for good. That, that what seemed to be the biggest defeat in the history of the world, the cross of Christ turns out to be the greatest victory ever, the defeat of sin and death and evil. And that's what God does because he does not fail. You sung it earlier, there is no one higher. He does not fail. And Joshua wants to highlight that he doesn't fail. He gets these kings out in verse 24 and he tells the people, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Not because he wants them kicking them. They put their feet 
on their necks. And Joshua said, don't be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous for this is what the Lord will do to your enemies against whom you fight. This is who your God is. He is powerful. He is mighty. He is the warrior. He does not lose. And even when it seems like he's losing, he is not. He has never lost because he is God. And that is who we worship. And that same God gives us grace. He doesn't hold our grudges against us. He answers our prayers. He fights for us and he works all together for good. And again, CBC, we got a lot of struggles and a lot of issues and, and I just wanna be a church that's known, I don't wanna be a church that's known for anything but grace and Christ. We're certainly not hip. We certainly don't have the best sound system, although praise God, there hasn't been a pop this service. It's amazing, it's a miracle. But those things don't matter. We want to be a church of grace that extends grace, that loves grace, that's amazed by grace. And, and one of our guys this week, Gary, said it so well. You know, the, great, the greatest miracle in the Old Testament, that's great. Don't be so amazed with the fact that God stops the sun. Be amazed with the fact that God slays the sun. That's where we should be amazed. Yes, he stopped the sun, big deal. No, that's, that's a mini miracle compared to the fact that he crushed his own son for us. That is the miracle. And that's, that's why we're here. And we're gonna remember that in a few minutes because we're gonna celebrate the table. And if you're a follower of Christ, we invite you to celebrate with us, to remember the body of Christ broken and crushed and pierced for you with the bread. Remember the blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Remember those things. And you know we're just gonna have a quiet time of reflection. The praise team will sing a little bit. And when you have reflected and when you have kind of had some time of repentance and confession, don't say, oh, I'm not worthy to come to the table. No one is. Have some time of confession and repentance. Search your heart. And once you've, once you've had that time, trust in the grace of Christ. It offers forgiveness and then celebrate. But if you're, not a, if you're not a Christian this morning, we are so glad you're here. But we just ask you to abstain at this point because this is a celebration, a symbol for those who have experienced forgiveness of sins through faith in Christ. What I would much rather you do and consider at this time is this. Do not resist this gracious God because he offers his grace to you and he offers his love to you. And he says, come to me for the forgiveness of sins. Whom I set free is free indeed. But if you resist him and you stiff harm him, understand that he, he will be opposed to you, that his hand will be on your neck, that, that you should fear this God if you reject him because he is not one to be trifled with. He offers his love, but there is judgment apart from him just like there was for these people. So cast yourself on him like Gibeon did or like Rahab, this, this woman in chapter three who was a harlot who, who cast herself on the mercy of God and he forgives and he restores. Cast yourself on him because he cares for you and he loves you. And he offers forgiveness through faith in his son. Let me pray and we'll worship. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your, your sacrifice for us, for your love for us, for your grace. We thank you that you are our, our mighty fortress the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are saved. That you have blessed us with inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, that will not fade away, that is reserved in heaven for us who are protected by the power of God through faith for our salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Lord, may we be a church of grace who is amazed by it, who loves it, who embraces it, and then who extends it, please. Don't let us just enjoy it for ourselves and not show it to others. What hypocrisy if we do that. Uh, let us be just a, a gracious people because you are a gracious God. 
For Christ's name's sake, I pray. Amen.